Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, the first day. And God said, Let there be a vault between the waters to separate water from water. So God made the vault and separated the water under the vault from the water above the vault. And so, and it was so. God called the vault sky, and there was evening, and there was morning, the second day. And God said, Let the water under the sky be gathered to one place, and let the dry ground appear. And it was so. God called the dry ground land, and gathered water. He gathered water he called seas. And God saw it was good. Then God said, Let land produce vegetation, seed-bearing plants and trees on the land that bear fruit with seed in it, according to the various kinds. And it was so. The land produced vegetation, plants bearing seeds according to their kinds, and trees bearing fruit with their seeds in it according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the third day. And God said, Let there be lights in the vault of the sky to separate the day from night, and let them serve as signs to mark sacred times and days and years. And let them be lights in the vault of the sky to give light on the earth. And it was so. God made two great lights, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. He also made the stars. God set them in the vault of the sky to give light on the earth, to govern the day and the night, to separate light from darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. And God said, let the water teem with living creatures and let the birds fly above the earth across the vault of the sky. So God created the creatures, the great creatures of the sea, the every living thing with which the water teems and that moves above, about in it, according to their kinds, and every winged bird pointing to its kinds, and God saw that it was good. God blessed them and said, Be fruitful and increase in number, and fill the water in the seas, and let the birds increase on the earth. And there was evening, and there was morning, the fifth day. And God said, Let the land produce living creatures according to their kinds, the livestock, the creatures that move along the ground, and the wild animals, each according to its kind. And it was so. God made wild animals according to their kind, the livestock according to their kinds, and the creatures that move along the ground according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, over the living creatures that move on the ground. 
And God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth, and every tree that has fruit with seed in it, that you will be that they will be yours for your food. And to all the beasts of the earth, and all the birds in the sky, and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw that all that he had made, and it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Well, thank you very much, Scott. Thank you for the invitation, and thank you, everyone, for making me so welcome. Portland Quarry has always been uh, very close to my heart. I went on my first PFA camp, it was PUI, but PFA in those days, down at Bonnie Hills, and uh, the speaker was a man called Godfrey Theobald, which I've always thought for a Christian man, having a name like Godfrey Theobald was a really good name to have. I always wondered if he was christened that or whether he just took it. Uh, but um, he was the guest speaker, and uh, I was... Um, I was just 17 and uh, I'd had some involvement with the youth group but um, certainly wasn't a Christian at that stage and uh, he, he, I found him a very intimidating man. Uh, he was fairly short, round, bald is my memory, and old. Um, so he must have been, I think, probably in his 40s. <laughs> and, uh, and, and he used to, when, when you got him, his, if you were driving with him to the beach, he would insist on praying before he drove. And I have to say, as a 17-year-old, that seemed to me to be a poor recommendation of his driving skills. <laughs> Next time I got in, and I drove with him a couple of times over the weekend, I kept thinking, if my parents knew I was driving with a man who had to pray before he drove to the beach, they probably wouldn't be happy with this. But I think, he, I don't know whether he did it to everyone, I suspect he may have, but um, I was cleaning my teeth uh, in, the, in the bathrooms one morning, and he came up to me and he says, do you know Jesus as your Lord and Saviour? Uh, no preamble, no introduction. Do you know Jesus? Nobody had ever asked me that question before, uh, and it scared the daylights out of me. So I spat and ran. <laughs> I had no other option. Um, the question wouldn't go away, and uh, later the following week, I got down on my knees and I gave my life to the Lord. Um, what he hadn't had time, because I'd, I'd run, what he hadn't had time was to explain assurance of salvation. And so I became a Christian on average two to three times a week uh, for the next 12 months. Every time I did something I thought was wrong, I thought that means I'm not a Christian, so I had to become a Christian again. And it was 12 months later, I think the Lord had got sick of hearing me. Uh, 12 months later, I went to a Canvas Crusade, which, does anyone remember the Canvas Crusades? Port Macquarie? <laughs> well, we used to have Canvas Crusades back then. Um, and they used to be down on the, um, uh, on the riverbank the end of Horton Street. Uh, in those days, it wasn't flash and set out the way it is now. It was just uh, very. It was just a little bit of grass. And they used to put up a great big tent at the end of every year, and uh, they got, got a man called John Farr to come up. He was a fiery Baptist preacher, and John Farr used to come up, and every night he would dangle you over the fires of hell in order to see whether you would repent. And uh, he, I still remember going. And he dangled us over the fires of hell. And I knew that I was something of a Christian, but I wasn't 100% sure the flames weren't still for me. And so I went down the front, and um, the man who was doing the follow-up was a man called Godfrey Theobald. Uh, and so he was able to finish the work that I don't think he even realised he'd begun and uh, explained to me assurance. So 
I'm very grateful to God for uh, the experience of growing up in Port Macquarie. Uh, so why don't we pray for ourselves now. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word and we pray that as we come to it, that it would be like a seed which is sown in fertile soil. Uh, may it take root deep in our minds and our hearts and may it grow up there with a harvest of salvation and righteousness, we pray. We pray for those things in Jesus' most precious name. Amen. Amen. My wife had a, um, a friend that she was away on a, um, a weekend sort of house party with, and uh, they got up very early one morning and walked to the headland, and as they got there, there was one of those uh, glorious made-in-heaven type uh, sunrises happening. And as they stood and watched it for a moment, my wife said to her friend, she said, uh, every time I see something like that, uh, I am overwhelmed by the uh, wonder and the glory of God that you see in creation. And uh, my, my wife's friend looked at her in something like astonishment and said, isn't that extraordinary? I never think about creation. I never think about God and creation. I only ever think about God and redemption. Uh, and I think there's a lot of truth in what, uh, what Pauline's friend said. I think that often as, as Christians, uh, we don't think that much about creation and the glory of God. We think a great deal about redemption, God saving us. And I think for some of us it's almost that, that, that sense that, that redemption has subsumed creation so that we have something larger and grander and better and bigger, salvation, Jesus, death on the cross, so why would we worry about creation? Because creation even has the potential to distract us from our great salvation. And so as Christians, we tend not to talk that much about creation. And yet it was John Calvin, that, um, that great Presbyterian, who said that creation was the theatre for God's glory. So if you want to actually see the glory of God, well, buy a ticket, take a seat, there the theatre in which you will see the glory of God being displayed is actually creation. The psalmist said that the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim his handiwork. And as everywhere that the glory of God is on display, whether in salvation or in creation, so also is the grace of God. Because the grace of God covers over all that God does. This weekend, our theme is God's grace. We're going to be looking at God's grace in creation now. We're going to look after morning tea at God's grace in salvation from Ephesians 2. Uh, we're going to be looking at God's grace in Christian living tomorrow morning. Uh, and just to illustrate uh, those three parts from the scriptures, we're going to be looking at two figures from church history, uh, Augustine of Hippo uh, this evening and Martin Luther of Reformation fame uh, immediately before we all go home again. And uh, the theme, the focus, is going to be the graciousness of our great God. So today, this morning, we're going to be looking at uh, God's grace expressed in creation. The place to go is obviously Genesis 1, so I hope you've got your Bibles open uh, there with me. Um, I, I thought, and I put it in the notes, that um, we should clear the room of the elephant, that is, um, science and Genesis in conflict, and I want to say that I have absolutely nothing to say on that topic. I'm probably the most ill-equipped person on the planet to make any comment on it. Um, when I, was, I went to school at Port Macquarie High School, it was the one near Oxley Over, it was the only school that was available unless you were 
um, going to the convent. And the highlight of my entire six years at high school was the day I was given permission to drop science. Uh, I hated science. Um, I never understood science. It was a source of absolute confusion to me. My own, the only thing that tempered my, my joy was the fact they wouldn't let me drop maths as well. Uh, I would have liked to have dropped that. So I'm not a good person to talk to about conflicts between, uh, between Genesis and science. You need to talk to someone who knows what they're talking about in the scientific world to, um, uh, to answer that question. So go find Francis Collins or John Lennox or someone like that. But what I want to do is to talk about Genesis and see what Genesis actually has to say. And I think that what you will find is that Genesis is far more interested in the who and the why and the so what than it is in the how. Um, so I don't want to buy into that debate, but, um, but I do want to say that Genesis 1 is primarily about who, about why, and about so what. Who created, why did he create, and so what that God has created. So what's the purpose of Genesis 1? Um, the primary focus, 32 times the name of God is mentioned. That's across 34 verses. The purpose of Genesis 1, the main focus of Genesis 1, is God. Now that sounds pretty obvious, doesn't it? And yet so often Genesis, of course, gets used for a whole range of other purposes. But the creation account is all about God. God is the subject of the account. He's the hero of the story. And in teaching us about creation, in verses 1 to 25, it teaches us something about the character of God revealed in the created order. And in verses 26 to 31, it reveals us something about the character of God revealed in the creation of you and me. And so we're going to divide it up in that way. We're going to look at the first, two, first 25 verses first. Then we're going to have a look at verses 26 to 31. Um, so firstly, verses 1 to 25, what we notice there is that God is ordered, planned and creative. That's a real focus of the, of the passages we read, read it through. And I'm sure that as it was read to you, you would have noticed that that was in fact the case. That God is ordered and planned and creative. Notice for a start the simplicity of the language. I've got um, four little grandboys. And uh, when they come to stay, we read the Bible to them. Now, we've got the Jesus Storybook Bible, which is a fabulous um, Bible to read for children. But when we come to creation, we don't need to use it. We can just read Genesis 1 to them. And the reason is because it is just so simple. You notice how simple the language is, how straightforward, how beautifully simple it is. Verses 3 to 5, for example, And God said, Let there be light, and there was light. God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, the third day. Down again in verse 9, God said that the water under the sky be gathered to one place, and let dry ground appear. And it was so. God called the dry ground land, and the gathered waters he called seas, and God saw that it was good. The language, it's not simplistic language, but it is simple language. It doesn't trivialise what is being said, but it chooses to say it in the most simple fashion possible. There's a lovely poetic quality to Genesis 1. You see it in the symmetry of the text. The first three days are matched by the next three days. So day one, God creates light and dark. Day four, he creates the light of the day sky and the light of the night sky. 
In day two, he, he creates the sea and the sky. In day five, he creates the fish to populate the sea and the birds of the air. In day three, he creates the earth. And in day six, he fills the earth with the animals of the land. Notice also there's a repeated chorus. There was evening, there was morning, the third day. Over and over and over again. There was evening, there was morning, the fourth day. There was evening, there was morning, the fifth day. There's a repeated chorus throughout Genesis 1. And there's a second chorus. And that second chorus, of course, is that God looked at what he had made and he saw that it was good. Again, over and over and over again throughout the text, God looked at what he had made at the end of each day. You can almost see him sitting back in the deck chair and looking at what he's done for the day and saying, that's good, that's good. There's a quality to the verses that wants to understand that the creation is ordered, controlled, deliberate and planned. Ordered, controlled, deliberate and planned. There is a mastermind behind creation. It's the great problem, of course, isn't it, with evolution. Evolution is essentially, at least as a philosophy, it is essentially God-less. It doesn't have God in it. Evolution says that the world that we live in is the random chance, that it's the coincidence of suitable conditions that gave rise to what we have today. Genesis tells us that it's the work of a creator. It was planned, it was deliberate, and it was creative. Scientists look at uh, the world that we live in and they, they identify certain things that keep happening, don't they? And we call them laws of nature. Uh, it's, a, it's a term really that, that dates from the Enlightenment, uh, when science was really starting to uh, explore and seek to understand the world that God had made. And when it observed, I mean, the classic one is Isaac Newton, he keeps watching things, they keep falling to the ground, says there must be some sort of law of nature at work there, so he calls it gravity, and away we go. We've now got gravity. It's interesting, G.K. Chesterton, um, who some of you perhaps have, have read or heard of, he was a Christian thinker at the end of the 19th, early 20th century. Let me read to you something that he, he wrote in a book called Orthodoxy. He said, a child kicks its legs rhythmically through excess, not absence, of life. Because children have an abounding vitality. They are in spirit fierce and free, and therefore they want things repeated and unchanged. They always say, do it again. And the grown-up person does it again until they are nearly dead. <laughs> the grown-up people are not strong enough to exult in monotony. It's true, isn't it? Honestly, it is so hard not to be bored when you're dealing with children because they just want to do the same thing over and over and over again. It's always the adult who says, no more swings. It's always the adult who says, no more monopoly. It's always the adult who says, I can't play that game of grab ever again. It's always the adult because we're not strong enough to exalt in monotony, Chesterton says. He says, perhaps God, though, is strong enough. It is possible, he suggests, that God says every morning, do it again to the sun. And every evening, do it again to the moon. It may not be automatic necessity, laws of nature, that make every daisy alike. It may be that God makes daisies separately, but has never gotten tired of making them exactly the same. It may be, he says, that God has the eternal appetite of infancy. For we have sinned and grown old. 
and our Father is younger than we are. Interesting view, isn't it? That there is an exaltation by God in those things that we look at and we take for granted, that we see as the mundane and the ordinary. But because Genesis tells us that creation is the work of a creator, that it's planned and deliberate and created, the so what from all of that is that therefore our existence matters. We are no random accident divested of meaning. There was a Nobel laureate in the 1960s called Jacques Monod. And uh, Jacques Monod, let me read to you what he said in, um, in, back in the 1960s. Nature does not have any intention or goal. Sorry? Say that again? No, she's just on fire. Oh, right. <laughs> Nature does not have any intention or goal. The universe is not pregnant with life nor the biosphere with, with man. Man at least knows that we are alone in the unfeeling immensity of the universe, out of which we emerged only by chance. Our destiny is nowhere spelled out, nor is our duty. The kingdom above or the darkness below, it's for us to choose. Now, in some ways, Jacques Monod is, is, is entirely logical, isn't he? If you remove God from the equation. Entirely logical if you remove from creation the fact that it is ordered and deliberate. But Genesis rejects that pessimism, says we're planned, we're deliberate. Our existence has purpose and meaning because we're the product of God's hand. But the second thing it tells us is that we're dependent creatures. There's no room for us to understand it in any other way than that we are dependent upon the God who has made us. Everything necessary for human survival, the water and the air, the plants and the animals, the light and the dark, the warmth and the cold, everything is spoken into existence by God. Every breath that we draw is entirely by the grace and the goodness of God. And so the images, aren't they, of the Bible are always dependent images for us and God. We're sheep, he's a shepherd. We're pots, he's a potter. We're, he's our fortress. We're in need. He's our rock. We're about to be washed away. Again, evolution tells us that because we're a random chance, we're a coincidence of conditions, therefore we're autonomous. We're totally free. Make our own destiny. Choose our own way. Genesis says, no, you're not. You're utterly dependent upon God who created you, who spoke you into being, who breathed life into you and gave you absolutely everything that you need for your survival. And therefore, as dependent men and women, we are responsible to God for the way in which we live. The third thing it tells us is that God is good uh, because what he created is good. That, that constant refrain, God saw that it was good, God saw that it was good, and of course it gets to us and God saw that it was very good. Why the repetition? Well, I suspect because the first thing that we want to doubt is the goodness of God. In the, the serpent in Genesis 3 comes to Adam and Eve. What's at the very heart of the temptation that he, um, that he presents for? Did God really put you in a garden, surround you with all this lavish fruit, and tell you not to eat any of it? Is that what God really did? What kind of a God would do that to you? What kind of a killjoy would put you in a lolly shop and say you're not allowed to touch any of it? That was the temptation, wasn't it? 
It was a denial or a questioning of the goodness of God. But Genesis wants us to understand that even though our first port of call when hardship comes is to question whether God is good or not, and who hasn't asked that question when we've sat by the, by the bedside of someone dying, when we've heard news of a child that has that, that contracted cancer, when we experience any kind of blockage in our lives, how could God allow that to happen? Is God really good? Genesis at the very start of the Bible nails it down. Yes, God is good. Because the lavish extravagance of creation gives testimony to the goodness of God. Because that's what Genesis wants us to understand. All those repetitive words. It's interesting hearing it being read right through. One of the things that struck me is that we often don't read Genesis 1 right through. We sort of skim it and we skip it and we think, oh, I know that, I've read that. And a part of the reason, I think, is because it appears to go into so much detail about such irrelevant stuff. The land produced, this is verse 12, the land produced vegetation, plants bearing seed according to their kinds, and trees bearing fruit with seed in it according to their kinds. And there's that kind of detail which is constantly there. And our temptation, if you're like me and you like reading things fast, is you skip over it. But there's a powerful insight into the character of God in this lavish extravagance that is the creation of our world. Have you ever thought about what God might have done had he been driven by our very functional uh, personalities that seem to prevail today? We live in a very functional world, don't we? If somebody says they're going to do something, the immediate question is, how much will it cost? Uh, if they decide they're going to build a new freeway, they say, what's it going to cost? Build a new entertainment centre, what's it going to cost? We measure everything according to the function of a cost-benefit analysis. The workplace is full of that today. It's a very rare workplace that if you put in an application for funds and they said to you, well, what's the purpose of it? And you said, well, I just thought it'd be fun to have. I know it's a million dollars, but golly, what's a million dollars when we're having fun? Most people are not going to get that kind of application through the management, are they? We live in a very functional world. And yet God's creation is this lavish, extravagant, in some ways you'd almost call it wasteful world, isn't it? Uh, I mean, think about it. If he'd been functional, he could easily have just made one kind of food source for us. Uh, taken everything that we need, all of the vitamins and minerals and nutrition and so forth, put it all into the single food source. Called it perhaps the broccoli and said, eat it. Eat it for breakfast, eat it for morning tea, eat it for lunch, eat it for afternoon tea, eat it for dinner. And when you're still hungry, have some for supper just before you go to bed. And that's it would have given us everything that we needed for sustenance of life. We would be perhaps even healthier and stronger than we are today. But he didn't do that, did he? He creates a world which is sprawling with so many good things to eat, whether they're mangoes or pawpaws or apples and oranges and fish from the sea. I mean, fish from the sea. Isn't that amazing? There are fish that... That, that, that glow when they're exposed to light with the most astonishing colours, but they live so far under the water that no light penetrates. I mean, who's that for? <laughs> Why would you do something like that? Seems, seems extravagant, doesn't it? It almost seems wasteful that they're sitting there, all this beautiful, and nobody ever sees it all. 
I mean, the dugong, I mean, why would you make a dugong? It makes absolutely no sense, doesn't it? I, um, my, my, my wife is a very tactile person, and uh, she, 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 she likes to feel things, and she loves craft. She does embroidery and sewing and, and loves materials. And uh, when we were in the first few years of marriage, before the children arrived, um, I spent, I don't know, it must be the equivalent of about 450 million man hours standing in fabric shops <laughs> looking at patterns and looking at materials to try. And it was a great relief when the children were born. I'll take them outside, Pauline, you just keep looking. I'm the good dad, I'll take them outside. I can remember one occasion we were in, um, in the city, in Sydney, um, in Pitt Street, and we'd been there for, for, forever. And, uh, <laughs> and I saw the bus that we were meant to be catching was coming by. And I said, Pauline, we've got to run. There's the bus. So we started to run, both of us. So I looked behind me. Pauline is running. And as she's running, she's feeling bolts of fabric along the way. She can't help herself. And I said to her, I said, I said afterwards, I said, Pauline, what are you doing? And she said, have you ever felt silk? And I said, no. She said, do you know what silk is? I said, well... Not exactly. I said, I've, I know that worms make it, but apart from that, I'm not really much. But she said, you need... So as we went in the next time, she grabbed some silk. She said, you need to feel this, Stuart. So I thought, it is extraordinary. It is extraordinary, isn't it? The feel of fabric silk. And you, you compare that with the feel of cotton, and you compare that with the full feel of wool, and you compare that with... It is just an extraordinary creation. And yet we live with little regard for the glory and the graciousness of God, which is revealed in it. This, this, this extravagance to it, so unnecessary for the pure functioning of life. And yet he gave us eyes that can see in technicolour. He gave us ears that can tell the difference between a baby's cry and the sound of a symphony. He gave us noses that can open that, 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 that freshly ground container of coffee and go, you think there's nothing on earth to describe that, but dear, it's good. Even non-coffee drinkers tell me they love it. And fingers that can feel silk and can draw pleasure from it. Tongues that can taste the difference between broccoli and Brussels sprouts. <laughs> between sasha tort and tuna morna. I mean, it's an extraordinary world, isn't it? And God has lavished this upon us, not because it was necessary, not because it was functional, but because it is an expression of the very character of God himself, that he is lavish and extravagant in his grace toward us. Think about the Lord Jesus Christ. Come back to a little bit of that tomorrow in the next talk. But, but think about the Lord Jesus Christ. He's invited to a wedding and they run out of wine. So what does he do? I know what I would have done in that situation. Had I had the capacity to turn water into wine, I would have said to myself probably how many more hours of the wedding to go? How many guests do we have? Um, how much do I think would be a good idea for them to drink? And I'll make just enough for them. Three bottles. I don't do. <laughs> and what is it that Jesus does? I mean, you've, I'm sure you've probably done the maths. If you haven't, go to, go to John's Gospel and do the maths. Um, he made enough for a small bottle shop. Um, way, 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 way too much for anybody to drink. This lavish, over-the-top extravagance. It's a character of God. Jesus feeds 5,000 people. 
What's the little detail that the Gospel writers are at pains to record for us to know? That after they had all finished eating their fill, the disciples go round with baskets and they filled up 12 baskets of leftovers. You see, we live in a culture, don't we, where we say, well, that was a mistake in catering. Clearly, he's overcated, and now there's waste. <laughs> I used to be involved with a Cook Island congregation, and uh, they used to have what they call feeds, and uh, they were these lavish meals. And I said to one of the elders once, I said, why is it that there's more food at the end of everyone eating than there is at the beginning? Tables would be chock-a-block full at the beginning, but there'd be even more food by the end. I said, I don't know what's happening there. And he turned to me and said, Stuart, he said, in Cook Island culture, it's a sign of generosity when at the end of the meal there is still more food left because it shows that we love people. It shows extravagance. And it shows the character of God, doesn't it? The church that I was pastoring at the time could never understand why the Cook Islanders didn't join us for our annual PWA dinner. Um, we always charged for it and people had to give their names in advance. And the goal of the evening was to have no food left at the end. Such a different culture. And I always felt mean-spirited alongside the Cook Island brothers and sisters. Because there's a generosity to God, isn't there, in all of that? Uh, a lavishness you see in Jesus with the 12 baskets of leftovers. Um, Jesus wants us to know this is the character of God, and creation testifies to his extravagance. So in, um, in looking at creation, we need to be looking for the telltale signs of the character of God there. Go down to the water there uh, in the afternoon. Have a look at the trees that are along the, along the, the sandy water. They're extraordinary trees. Um, most of them are as ugly as sin, but they're extraordinary <laughs> trees nonetheless. They are, they are simply astonishing. I went for a walk there quickly this morning. And they're lovely. Go and hold them. One of the things I, I say to our students is we've got paperbark trees in our in Badminton Road with the college that said, you need to go and run your hands along. They all start looking thinking good, but if he wants us to hug a tree, don't tell me we're going there. But it's just to feel the variety, the, the glory of God in it. Go and sit on the grass and run your hands on it and give thanks to God. See, we need to cultivate that in ourselves. It will not happen naturally because sin has got hold of us. But in the creation, as we engage with the creation, as we enjoy the creation, as we value the creation, we are actually giving glory to the one for whom and by whom all things were made, that is to say, the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's move to our next section, though, um, the second half from verses 26 to 31 where Genesis teaches us about the character of God revealed in the creation of you and me. John Calvin said that nearly all the wisdom we possess consists of two parts, the knowledge of God and the knowledge of ourselves. And we cannot achieve a clear knowledge of ourselves unless we first know God. And knowledge of ourselves, he said, will lead us by the hand to find God. So Genesis 1 will tell you all about yourself, everything you need to know. Genesis 1 gives us, I think, firstly, a proper perspective on who we are in the scheme of things. Nowadays, we often talk about the fact that the human existence occupies, if you had a 12-hour clock, the human existence occupies just the last couple of minutes of that 12-hour period. Uh, it's, a, it's a very common view. It's often put forward as a reason why we should have 
if you like, a devaluation of the dignity of men and women because we really do only, only occupy a tiny, tiny little blip in the overall history of, uh, of the universe. But it's interesting what, what the scriptures say. In my Bible, Genesis 1 is there. If you want to add Genesis 2 and a little bit of the forward, you've got the two pages. Probably the same in yours. And then I've got that for human history. Very powerful statement, isn't it? Just in the first two chapters, God deals with creation, however you want to understand it. He deals with creation, but then he moves to what really matters, you and me, and our dealings with the Almighty God. And so Blaise Pascal said that, that, that men and women are neither angels nor beasts. They're something completely separate, different. Why? Because... We are made in the image of God. Notice what, um, what Genesis says in verse 26. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over all the creatures that move on the ground. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. And God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. We are image bearers of Almighty God. Think about that for a moment. Think about the lavish extravagance of God in making you in the image of God. What does that mean? What does it actually mean for us to be made in the image of God? Well, firstly, we know it makes us different from everything else. You can't confuse a man or a woman with any other part of creation. Peter Singer, the Australian philosopher, uh, has accused humanity of being what he calls speciousists. Now, being speciousist is like being racist. It's speciousist. That is, we discriminate for no good reason in favour of humanity over all the other species of the world. And the answer to that criticism is, yes, you're exactly right, we do. It's the way it should be. Exactly right because we are qualitatively different. Now, that's no grounds for abuse of other species. We can't argue uh, for, for that kind of brutal domination, but we cannot argue that there is no qualitative difference between humanity and the remainder of creation. We are made in God's image, and there is therefore a dignity to humanity that even despite the fall has not been obliterated. We are not worthless. Think about that for a moment. You are not worthless. Now, that may never have occurred to you. You may have such a robust sense of self that it's never crossed your mind that you might be. But for many people, that is revolutionary. To know that you are worth something. Why? Because, not because of what you've done, not because of your Instagram account, not because of, of, of your looks, not because of any of those things, but you are worth something because firstly you have been made in the image of God. And that needs to shape, for us as Christians, let me say, that has to shape the way in which we regard all of humanity. There needs to be a respect generated out of the church for all of humanity based simply on the fact that all of humanity is made in the image of God. Uh, it's interesting, we have today a legal doctrine of crimes against humanity. And uh, it can be traced right back to a Christian man 
back in the 1600s, a man called John Cook, who was the Solicitor General who prosecuted King Charles I of England uh, for what was effectively at the time regarded as tyranny, which is crimes of today, the modern crimes against humanity. And uh, it's an interesting book by a guy called Geoffrey Robertson. It's not as far as I know a Christian man, but it's an interesting book where he, it's a biography of John Cook, and he says there's a link there from Christian to the way that we think today, but it's based on the inherent worth of men and women because each of us are made in the image of God. So what does it mean to be made in the image of God? Let me suggest to you, firstly, it means that we're spiritual beings, uh, that we can relate to God. And that's a good thing, isn't it? There's a what Pascal described as a God-shaped vacuum in each one of us. And so we yearn to be known and to know. We yearn to for something beyond the grave. We yearn for satisfaction that can only be satisfied when God fulfills us. Because that is the way that we were made. But not only are we are we uh, spiritual beings, but the Genesis account tells us that we are relational beings also. Notice the language of verses 26 and 27. God created man in his own image. Male and female, he created them. That's verse 27. Go back up into verse 26. Let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the earth. Notice the plurals. Let us make in our image... It's a resonance, isn't it, of the doctrine of the Trinity, Father, Son and Holy Spirit existing in perfect relationship within himself. This eternal dance between the Father, the Son and the Spirit where uh, co-eternal and co-equal and yet each of them with different roles and functions to play but essentially in the very character of God that he is relational. And he makes men and women in his image. Uh, soon after I graduated, um, we got a job. I got a job up on the Central Coast as a lawyer, and uh, Pauline started working at uh, Wee Wee Hospital as a social worker. And uh, we hadn't been there that long, uh, and uh, and a very very close friend of ours uh, died. Um, she was uh, pregnant with their second child, and she just laid on the bed and died. Um, We'd not really ever faced death up until that point. Uh, and uh, I have to say that it, it, it shook my very core. Remember, when we first got the news, I get feel quite claustrophobic in those situations. And I said, I need to get out and walk, Pauline. So we got out and walked. Uh, and we just walked for several miles and processed and talked. And by the time we got back home again, what we had both realised was that if life has any meaning at all, it is only found in relationships. And uh, it was only years later that I discovered the theological reason for that. But we are made for relationships. Relationship with God and relationship with others, nothing else matters. I was a lawyer, I was a social worker. We were just starting to live the Australian dream. Uh, and who knows what might have happened to us. Uh, we had everything that we wanted and we had all of life mapped out in front of us. And it was a good life. But we are not made for careers and we are not made for uh, material possessions. We are made for relationship with God and with each other. 
And so we need to constantly ask ourselves, what do I want my life to look like? Do I want to give expression to my God imageness? Do I want to live for relationships, live for God and live for relationship with others? Or do I want to sell myself short and sell my humanity short and sell my life short by being so preoccupied with other things that those things which matter most are the very things that suffer most? James Dobson said, when I reach the end of my days, a moment or two from now, I must look backward on something more meaningful than the pursuit of land, machines and stocks and bonds. I will consider my earthly existence to have been wasted unless I can recall a loving family, a consistent investment in the life of people and an earnest attempt to serve the God who made me. Nothing else makes much sense. It's true, isn't it? Yet we get so caught up in it, don't we? It just takes on a life and a momentum of its own. And we keep thinking, I'd like to get off it, but, but we don't. A couple of different times I've had friends go to funerals for work colleagues. And they've come back and they've said, I've got to change something about my life. Work is far too important. I stand at the grave and I think, what's the point if that's where I'm going to go? But it's hard. It's hard for them to break the cycle. It's not easy. We're spiritual beings made for a relationship with God. We're relational beings made for a relationship with God and with each other. And we're responsible beings. We've got an authority that comes with our imageness to be careful stewards in the creation. So verse 28, God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth, subdue it, rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, and over every living creature that moves on the ground. We're representatives of God. It's an extraordinary thought, isn't it? Stewards charged with responsibility for his creation. We can't be Christian and take it for granted. We can't be Christian and ignore it. Our responsibility is to work and to care for this extraordinary creation that gives glory to God. It's an amazing picture of humanity, isn't it? It'd be easy, wouldn't it, to walk out the door and think, well, I'm pretty special. Image bearer, made in the image of God, ruling over creation. How cool is that? But of course, you take a look around. In fact, if you just take a look inside yourself, I suspect, like me, you will discover that the reality is not quite so glorious, is it? Uh, there's something broken about us all. Genesis 3, of course, tells us why. It says it's because of sin. There's this inevitability about broken relationships. Now, as soon as Adam and Eve sin, what happens? Well, they've got a broken relationship with God, so they go and hide. They're afraid of God now. They start to blame each other. It was this woman that you gave me, God. I'm talking about responsibility here. Let's not look at me, says Adam. Not my problem. It's the woman. And where did I get her from? Well, I got her from you. So let's, if we're going to apportion blame, God, let's begin with yourself, okay? And cursed is the ground because of you. And then the rest of the Bible, well, not the rest of it, but a good part of it, is all about this fruitful, fruitless search, isn't it, for, a, for an image bearer, someone who's going to make things right. 
King David, he failed. King Solomon, he was as bad or worse. Prophet Isaiah said there's going to be a suffering servant come one day. He's going to make all things right. And in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul reminds us that that one has come. Someone who he says in Colossians is the image of the invisible God. The one by whom and for whom all things were made. And in 2 Corinthians 3, he says, you and I are now, because of Jesus, being transformed into the likeness of God. It's all being restored. It's all being put back together again because Jesus, the one true image bearer, is transforming those whom he has redeemed, restoring us to make us more and more like Jesus. I wonder if that's something that you think about every day. How have I become just that little bit more like Jesus? What progress do I see over the last month or a year? In what ways does my life and my character and my relationships and the way that I live and the priorities that I have, to what extent are they different now than they were 12 months ago? Different in the way that they reflect just that little bit more the character of the God who made me in his image. It's perhaps not a question that we think too much about, but it's a good question for us to ask. Uh, a good question perhaps even to ask others. Don't tell them to be nice, tell them to be honest. Tell me how I've become more like Jesus. Can you see it? Ask if you're married, ask your husband or wife. They're your best judge. Uh, or ask your kids. But ask someone. How have I become that little bit more like the Lord Jesus Christ? Because I am an image bearer of God. It's a part of the lavish, extravagant love and grace that God has shown me in creation. And he has redeemed me so that I will become once again an image bearer. And how is the Holy Spirit today doing that work in me? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for... Well, it, it, it is, it's extravagant, Father. We thank you for your extravagance with us. Making us in your image and setting us in a world, in a creation that is so extraordinary. And we give you the thanks and the praise and the worship and the honour. And we pray that you might take our lives now, Lord, and let them be given over, Lord, to thee that daily you would be making us that little bit more like the Lord Jesus Christ, transforming us back again into the image of God. And may it all be for the glory and honour of the one by whom and for whom all things were made, who is himself the very likeness of God, perfectly God in every way. May it all be for the glory and honour of Jesus. Amen.